This is for all of us who have been robbed of loved ones by the cruel hands of death. Uh, Spouses and sisters and brothers and cousins and babies and children and parents and grandparents and friends. And we come today before the author of life and plead for death to die. In the name of the rabbi who was and is forevermore, the resurrection and the life. Amen. The Bible calls death the last enemy to be defeated. It does not view death as simply part of the circle of life. It views death as an aberration from the original Edenic design. And it calls death not only an enemy, but the the last enemy. The last enemy to be defeated. This is one battle we won't win. You know, you may win the battle against your cholesterol, and I hope you do. You may win a battle against some hidden vice in your life. That would be terrific. Uh, You may win a battle against some business competitor out there who's trying to take you down. You may win the battle against a department chair whom you find especially unpleasant. Uh, You may win some battle against cancer. But there is one battle that we do not have the power to win, and that is the battle over death. Uh, Death is the horrific, impartial leveler. This is what uh, Shakespeare taught us when he was uh, writing that poem, which inferred the aristocracy. He said, golden boys and girls all must, like chimney sweeps, come to dust. It is the near-invincible foe. And maybe that's why the raising of Lazarus uh, offers us a little hope and more than a little hint that sometimes even death can be bested. If you, uh, like me, are an amateur student of the arts, you know that the scene of the raising of Lazarus is one of the most frequently depicted in the milieu of Christian artwork. It's uh, so frequently depicted that I went online for this sermon and just looked at different versions, retellings of the story in visual form. And I'd like in this sermon to describe three paintings that beautifully illustrate what are the three central, penetrating, provocative themes of this text. The first theme, and we would do ourselves a disservice to miss it, the first theme is pity. Pity. There is an American Impressionist named uh, Daniel Bennell who uh, painted a portrait called Jesus Wept. It's beautiful. Uh, Dark, rich earth tones. But everything is dark in the painting, including the sun, kind of a mustard yellow. It's a gloomy scene. One of the rare scenes, in fact, which doesn't include a hint of the raising of Lazarus. It's simply Jesus Wept. And a hooded, shrouded figure of Jesus embraces Mary. You can barely see Jesus' face. And the only thing that is bright on the canvas are the tears of Jesus. They are a sky blue, standing in stark contrast to the muted colors of the painting. And the tears flow from Jesus' eyes onto Mary's form, 
and somehow encircle her entire form in this light blue, and then come around to surround Jesus as well. So not only are tears flowing from his eyes, they're surrounding entirely the two figures, highlighting them from the background and suggesting something about the profundity of heaven's empathy. This is a tear-sodden scene from every single angle. I want to read a key verse to you and then talk about it. It's verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, that is Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Three parties weeping. The Jews are weeping. You may know from previous sermons that the Jews in John's gospel, that phrase is a technical term that generally refers to Jesus' antagonists. But here in this picture, in this, um, in this story, we get a fuller picture of what these people are all about, that they come in verse 19 to console Mary and Martha, and then in verse 33, they weep with them. We also have Mary and Martha who offer to Jesus, as you may have noticed, the same speech. And they express their grief in the form of disappointment. They're essentially saying to Jesus, this day didn't need to happen. If you cared enough, you could have prevented it, and yet you didn't. If you were here, my brother would not have died. And they're weeping. And then we see also, and most beautifully and paradoxically, Jesus weeping. But not just weeping. The text says he was moved, he was troubled, and he wept. This word for trouble is, is something that is, uh, that, that is deep in the human uh, consciousness. Uh, the, the Greek word suggests an inner kind of twisting and tumult at the core of somebody's gut. It's when, you're, it's when you're devastated so seriously that you can't even stand up straight. It's a moment that, that, um, that it feels like the world around you is shaking and you might be the cause of the quake. Uh, that's the sense of that Greek word. And the only time that it's repeated in John's Gospel is at the Last Supper in chapter 13, where Jesus, when talking about his imminent departure from his disciples and his imminent crucifixion, says, now is my soul troubled, as he's looking toward uh, his torturous demise. And then the same word comes back again whenever he's talking about Judas Iscariot and his imminent betrayal. And so it seems that the only time that Jesus' gut is wrenched that the ground of being starts to quake, is when he considers the subject of death, and not just his own death, but the death of anyone. The death of this friend causes him agony, deep agony. Some have asked the question, why on earth would Jesus weep? I mean, he knows the endings are happy, right? You know, if it's one thing that you can, I mean, you can't, criticize Jesus for being a dummy. He, you know, he's very intelligent, and he understands how this story is going to conclude. 
Well, some have said, well, the explanation is that Jesus is weeping and deeply troubled because he's upset with the lack of faith in Mary and Martha. So troubled that they don't seem to understand his personality and his power that he, um, he's, he's crushed inside. But it can't mean that. Because in the text, we have Martha, uh, after she gives her disappointed speech, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Martha says, but even now, I believe that God will do whatever you ask him. And I believe that you are the Christ. So it isn't that there's a lack of faith. Some people have said, well, Jesus is weeping because he missed his friend Lazarus. An odd conclusion, being that Jesus waited deliberately, as odd as that may sound to us, so that Lazarus would die in order to raise him back to life so that the glory of God would be fully revealed. He didn't miss Lazarus. He was going to see him again very, very shortly. Instead, why does he weep? The text tells us in verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had also come to be with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled, and he wept. He is captured by a moment of agonizing grief. And he is following um, the admonition of St. Paul before there was a St. Paul, that you weep with those who weep. You don't encourage those who weep, trying to catapult them out of their grief. You meet them in their grief, and you cry with them there. You honor the agony for what it is, and you join in the mourning. Jesus is weeping for them, and he's weeping because people die, and he's weeping because we lose people, and we don't get them back. He's weeping because we, the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, are slain. And in this passage, we see the watery empathy, the pity of God which means there is always an unseen mourner at every funeral. And so we see the pity of heaven. And that's the first theme. Theme two, power. <clears throat> the earliest artistic rendering of the raising of Lazarus was discovered in the Roman catacombs. It dates from about A.D. 400. In this painted depiction, uh, Jesus is shown as the Roman emperor. He has around his head the leafy crown. He's beardless, wears the imperial toga, uh, has the golden cincture, and is pointing with a scepter to the tomb of Lazarus. The artist, people think, was trying to communicate the idea of supreme power. And he or she used the universal image of the most powerful person on earth who was believed to have divine qualities, the Caesar. So to communicate dominion, power, might, Jesus is painted as the Caesar himself. The implication of the painting is that it takes a lot more than wisdom, education, charm, and position to unmake death. It takes a divine touch. Power. Verse 43. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Untie him and let him go. Um, this miracle, or according to John, this sign, demonstrated Jesus' 
power and immediate authority more than any other sign, more than water to wine, more than healing paralytics, this sign exposed Jesus to the world in an even profounder way. Now, on the one hand, Jesus had resuscitated people before, resuscitated them from death. You have uh, um, Jairus' daughter being raised to life. You have the widow of Nain's son being raised to life. All of Jesus' miracles, in a sense, defied the category of possibility. But this one especially, because Lazarus wasn't just dead. He was very, very dead. The text speaks about this twice, that he had been dead for four days. How do I put this? Nicely. He was too dead for a miracle. You know, just too too far gone. Because, because now it just gets gross and weird after four days. And this is what the text says so memorably in the King James Version. It said, but yea, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> By now he stinketh. Uh, you get the idea. Like, uh, decomposition had had uh, had um, uh, had set in, and there's no going back from that. But what we witness is not just a miracle, but a divine miracle, in the sense that the God who created the cosmos with words ex nihilo can also recreate with mere words. All he has to say is Lazarus come out, and he does. He comes out whole alive. He comes out well. The implication is, of course, that if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the grave after four days, he can also raise those uh, who have been crushed by time into powder, into dust, that he has the power, he has the technology, he's got this covered, And the same God who creates is the God who can recreate with a word. And so, upon our earthen doorstep arrives the emperor of life, the embodiment of pity and the embodiment of power. And in Jesus, they're beautifully wedded together. Now, from human beings who who are dealing with those who are in the middle of crisis, sometimes pity is all that can be expected. Sometimes it's all that's needed is empathy, is presence, is love, is care in the moment. Because we, unlike God on earth, don't have power to say a word and cure somebody's ailment or situation. We cannot, in our own power, raise the dead. We couldn't do that or we would never go to another funeral. But in God, the two things are united. And what a gift that is, because imagine if it was just empathy that the Lord comes to us in our beleaguered state in our funerals, or on our deathbeds. Or just use the illustration of if you're drowning in the sea, and you're uh, engulfing salt water, and you're, you're having trouble breathing, and you're getting tired of splashing around, waiting for somebody to rescue you. And there um, falls, in the middle of the sea, Jesus. And he says, well, I'm here for you. And I'm going to swim, and I'm going to keep you company. Until, you know, but, but at least we'll have each other. Not a great deal of comfort in such a scenario. We need that same Jesus to grab onto us and bring us back to shore. We need empathy um, and remedy, pity and power. And that's what we have in the Jesus who is revealed in this passage. Theme three, trust. 
Uh, Leon Bonneau, the uh, French realist who, like many good French artists before him, died in bankruptcy, uh, uh, he painted one piece that was especially famous entitled The Raising of Lazarus. In it, Jesus' arms uh, are, are thrust out in front of him, and he is uh, clearly in a, in a kind of a prayerful mode as Lazarus stands before him, uh, his body mummified and wrapped in his hands, wrapped together in a prayerful gesture. The crowd that surrounds the miracle is staring with wide eyes and wide open mouths at Lazarus, who has just been raised to life. All of them staring intently at Lazarus, with the exception of Martha. Martha is located slightly behind Jesus, kneeling, and doesn't look at her brother at all, but stares in horror and wonder at the man who raised Lazarus. Her attention is clearly on Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life. It's a moment of faith, a moment of trust. Verse 23. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ. Uh, Jesus wishes to cultivate in Martha and Mary, and presumably the crowd, a particular sort of belief, or what we could call trust. I want you to note here, it is not a belief, he doesn't necessarily here wish to communicate only the belief in an eternal, everlasting God, however that word might be defined. He does not want to cultivate a belief in mere life after death, however that might be understood or expressed. He does not simply want to cultivate a belief in our ability to achieve eternal life. Such a thing has not been possible since the Edenic crash. He does not uh, want us necessarily to believe, he does not even um, seek after uh, belief in Jesus' own divinity or eternality, though that's of course assumed. Jesus is after a very specific kind of trust. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Christ claims to embody, encapsulate the idea of resurrection. Just as a brief reminder, resurrection is that Jewish hope that uh, continues to bud and sprout throughout the, the Old Testament texts. The, the hope is that this world now fractured and um, capitulating uh, towards sin and evil and darkness, uh, will be entirely remade. It isn't just that our souls will spring from our bodies and playing harps on clouds. The whole idea in Jewish eschatology is that the creation itself will be put back together. Things will be renewed. Our bodies will be healthier. Heaven uh, may be more physical than what we know as physicality now, but it won't be, uh, it won't be less physical. So he claims that he's the embodiment of resurrection and the embodiment of life going back all the way to Genesis where God creates life as a good gift and then puts a tree in the garden as sort of a sacramental expression of that life, the tree of life, which gives the man and the woman an eternal quality. And, uh, and uh, this, um, this idea of life not only means immortality, but sort of an immortal fulfillment. 
uh, an immortal life in which uh, you're not uh, wanting nor wasting, that you have what you need. And he is saying to Mary, not only that I embody these two principles, and you'll never come closer in your life to them than right now, but do you believe that the one who has these things bottled up inside him will give them to you freely? Do you trust me to take care of you after you die? Because you're never really going to die. Not in the fullest sense of the word. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and then asks, do you believe this? He's asking Martha if she trusts that he is able to do what no one else can. Revitalize the dead and conquer the invincible foe. And that he is the mechanism through which eternal life is granted. Not just to Lazarus. Not just to Mary and Martha, but to all who have that trust. Do you trust that I'm that person? And as a precursor of the life to come, Jesus prays that Lazarus would live again. He doesn't offer an incantation that the soul of Lazarus would find respite. He raises a body. She responds by saying, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now, um, pity, power, and trust. A closing word about each. Pity. Some believers are under the misapprehension that one cannot simultaneously have faith in the resurrection, life after death, and at the same time express intense grief, particularly intense grief over a prolonged period of time. To do so would demonstrate in some ways a lack of faith. Some would argue that it's permissible to express grief, but if you're not able to move on, uh, then your faith is somehow lacking, anemic. I simply want to say that the incarnate Lord, when he came among us, did not only find it permissible but appropriate to have his gut wrenched and to cry, and not only cry, but cry publicly. Um, We have so much over which we really should grieve, you know. There are faces that we won't see again for a very long time, and there are people who could have enhanced our lives, but they're not here right now. And so I, I call us all to really a holy obedience of grief, following the pattern of our own Lord, who found it quite fitting um, to experience and express the darkest emotions related to death. And as you grieve, just know that you are outlined in blue surrounded by the sky-blue tears of Christ, mingled with your own pity. Also power. I said that death was the near-invincible enemy. You know, there was an exception. One hole stabbed into the black curtain. The exception, friends, was not Lazarus, who would have a second funeral. His sisters would be tear-sodden again. It was the man who could not remain dead, the one who called himself the resurrection and the life. He said, I have authority 
to lay my life down, and I have authority to raise it back up again. Now, you and I don't, but he does. And his authority to raise life up again stretches beyond his own person and catches all of us in its wake. That's the kind of power that you're going to encounter the millisecond after you are defeated by this life. Also, trust. I have a friend who ran a daycare in a high-rise in Hoboken, New Jersey. And she was present in that daycare with about 20 children when on 9-11, the planes came from the sky and smashed into the Twin Towers. They could see the smoke. They could hear the chaos all around them. And the children, in the days that followed 9-11, reacted to what had occurred. The children who were by nature quiet became more quiet. The children who were rambunctious became more rambunctious and acted out a lot. The children were also trying to replicate the scene in their own playtime. They would stack blocks in tower formations and then knock them down. Well, one day, a fireman came into the daycare to do a, a safety demonstration for the children. But the children were uniquely interested and attentive to the presentation. And they were also very inquisitive about crisis and what would happen if their own building caught on fire. They asked... Uh, the fireman, what if there's a fire and we run to the back door and we touch the door and it's hot? And the fireman said, well, that's all right because you have, the, you have the other door and you could run out and you'd be all right. And another child raised her hand and said, but what, what if that door is hot? He said, okay, well, you know, this high rise, you know, you're, you're very high off the ground, but we firemen have trucks that have long ladders and we could, we could climb up and we could save you, through, we could pull you through the windows. I said, oh, okay. Then another student said, but what if you don't get here in time? And my friend stopped the presentation and said, I, I think I know what we're all talking about. What if there's no way out, right? And she walked to the window, and right outside the window, near the top of a steeple on a Catholic church, was a statue of the risen Jesus, wounds in his wrists, arms outstretched. And my friend pointed to the statue and said, if there's no way out, And we all meet him together. We trust that our breathless bodies are held in the punctured hands of the emperor of life. And I can think of no better handler for us and for everyone we love. Because he told us with memorable certainty 
I am the resurrection and the life. We can only learn so much and live. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.